We're going to start in the book of Daniel. A couple of historical textual things before we get started in the actual book. The book of Daniel is controversial. Scholars are of the opinion that it was probably written after the events of the Maccabees, so mid to late 2nd century BC. And a couple of reasons for that. Reason number one is when we get into the soap opera that happens between the kings of the north and the kings of the south, it lays out all of the back and forth court machinations and so forth between the Ptolemies and the Seleucids during the period that led up to the Maccabees. And it is so accurate that scholars say this was clearly written after the fact. It's in the Septuagint. It was written by 70 scholars. It's a Greek translation of the Tanakh. It doesn't have any New Testament in it, obviously. It's a Jewish translation. And Daniel is part of it, but there's some question as during what time that part of the Septuagint was translated. So it's fairly well acknowledged that the Torah part of the Septuagint was translated in the 3rd century B.C. But then sources I've read said that they translated the rest of them sort of over a period of time. And the way they describe it is that this is a series of stories and legends that was put together around the mid-2nd century B.C. Of, uh, and there were a lot of books that were written in the 200 years before Yeshua. A lot of them were clearly apocryphal. So you have the Book of Enoch and books like that that were written in the style of the biblical authors, but they were written in the couple hundred years before Yeshua was born. Judith and Tobit, lots of books that were written during that period. I will tell you right up front, I don't know, but I will tell you that Yeshua himself authenticates it. If you go to Matthew 24, and this is him describing the end times, and if you pick it up at 24:15, so when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, let the reader understand, let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains, and, let the, and so forth. So Yeshua refers to Daniel as a prophet. Yeshua, however, doesn't say in that when he thinks Daniel was written. But on the authority of Yeshua, I will take the prophetic parts of Daniel as being legitimate prophecy. Depending on who you talk to, there will be people that will sniff at Daniel. There will be other people who will say Daniel was written at the time and the place that it purports to have been written. From my perspective, the thing about Daniel that's important, other than there's a bunch of homiletic stuff that's important, because he doesn't eat the king's dainties and interprets dreams and so forth. But the real meat of Daniel are the prophetic sections. And what Yeshua has done for me is authenticated those. So when it was written is interesting, but not important as far as taking the prophetic section seriously and, of course, respecting the homiletic sections. Daniel is written in two different languages. It's the only book that is. Part of the book is written in Hebrew, and part of the book is written in Aramaic. Nebuchadnezzar's testimony, for example, is written in Aramaic. And we get there, I'll point out the shift. It doesn't make any practical difference other than academically to know it's written in two different languages. The historical events in Daniel 
Nebuchadnezzar was a, the king of Babylon, and he was a military commander. In fact, when he became king, he was off leading the Babylonian army on a campaign. And his father died, and he had to come back and, and take the throne. So he is he's a commander. He's not like uh, Belshazzar later in the book of Daniel, who's sort of a palace fop and not really much of anything. You know, when, he's, when the handwriting on the wall comes, it gives a uh, very graphic description of him soiling his toga in fear. So Nebuchadnezzar is not like that. Nebuchadnezzar is, is a serious military commander and a serious king. He invaded, from his perspective, the West twice. The first time he came and besieged Jerusalem was in 597 B.C. And at that point, he put Jerusalem and Judah under tribute. And one of the things that he did as part of that process is he took a bunch of noble young people with him as hostages. That was a normal device of statecraft, if you will, clear up until the 18th and 19th centuries. So when you've got a vassal state that you want to make sure that they stay vassals, what you do is you take a bunch of the royal family, cousins and sons and daughters and stuff like that, and you bring them back to your capital, and they are treated well. They are treated according to the social status that they had in their home countries, but they are very much hostages. So if the hometown decides to go into rebellion, it's understood that those hostages will be killed. And as long as everybody behaves himself, these people grow up in the conquering country. They're treated well, no problem, but they're hostages. And that's what Daniel and his friends are. So when Nebuchadnezzar goes the first time and besieges Jerusalem, that's when he takes Daniel and his companions back with him as state hostages. He goes back a second time, 10 years later, and sands the place off flat and destroys the temple and all that kind of thing. By that time, Daniel and his companions have integrated themselves into the Babylonian government and have become very prominent. So they are, in fact, not killed as part of this process. I think that brings us up to date. So I'm in Daniel chapter 1. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And that's in the beginning of the 6th century B.C. So depending on what source you read, somewhere between 607 B.C. and 597 B.C. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. And that would have been fairly standard procedure. We just beat you. Our gods are stronger than your gods. So not only are we going to take hostages of you, we are going to take hostages, if you will, of your gods, or trophies of your gods to show that our gods are stronger than your gods. All that's fairly standard practice. Verse 3. Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch. By the way, Ashpenaz means horse's nose. What we would say today is horse face. You've met people who are horse-faced. So then the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, 
youths without blemish, of good appearance, and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace, and to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate, and of the wine that he drank. They were to be educated for three years, and at the end of that time they were to stand before the king. So this goes back to the introductory remarks I made. These are people of rank from Israel, Judah. They are treated as people of rank, even though they're hostages. So you know, they're given the best food from the Chaldeans' perspective. They eat from the same pantry that the king eats from. An indicator, as I said earlier, that they are treated according to their station. Verse 6, among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel he called Belteshazzar, Hananiah he called Shadrach, Mishael he called Meshach, and Azariah he called Abednego. Abednego, for example, Nego is one of their gods, so these are Babylonian names. And by the way, this is the southern kingdom that was attacked. Because you remember the northern kingdom was completely destroyed and sent off about 100 years earlier. So when it says of the tribe of Judah, it could have been Judah or it could have been Levi or it could have been part of Benjamin, but it's the nation of Judah that has been conquered. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. You all know biblical dietary laws. So what Daniel has determined is that he does not want to violate biblical dietary laws. And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my lord the king, who assigned your food and drink. For why should he see that you are in worse condition than the youths who are of your own age? So you would endanger my head with the king. Obviously what's going on is the king has given directions on how these folks are to be treated. And... If they are not well and healthy and so forth, the king is going to look at his chief eunuch and say, what are you feeding these guys? I will suggest, although the scripture does not say so, that the chief eunuch has an incentive to let these guys eat lower class food. And the incentive is he will have a surplus of really high quality food that he can then go down and sell in the town or whatever. Servants have been making extra money doing that kind of thing ever since there were servants. I suspect that the eunuch doesn't have a problem making a few extra shekels or pounds or whatever the Babylonian unit of currency was. But he also dares not let these guys' health deteriorate. Otherwise, he's going to be caught and it will go very poorly with him. And of course, we're going to see in the next chapter when we get to Nebuchadnezzar's dream that Nebuchadnezzar is fairly straight-laced about lots of stuff. He's perfectly willing to go ahead and kill all of the previous king's advisors, to include Daniel, simply because they can't pass his test. And as I said at the beginning, this guy is a legitimate military commander. He is not some foppish guy that's grown up in the court and doesn't know anything except how to dance. This guy is a military commander, and he doesn't take any nonsense. So from the chief eunuch's perspective, he is not about to cross the king in any way that he might be discovered. Verse 11, 
Then Daniel said to the steward, whom the chief of the eunuchs had assigned over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, Test your servants for ten days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance and the appearance of the youths who eat the king's food be observed by you, and deal with your servants according to what you see. Notice we have a second person here now. He made his request to the chief eunuch, Ashpenaz. However, there is somebody else that has been given direct supervision over them. And it's that guy who Daniel is asking to perform the test. So the chief eunuch said, uh, like you guys, but I'm not going to jeopardize myself in order to accommodate your weird religion. Whoever was the direct supervisor of the guys, however, is more malleable. I don't know which one of them is crooked and is going to skim off the top. I just have no idea. But he does allow the test to proceed. Verse 14. So we listened to them in this matter and tested them for 10 days. At the end of 10 days, it was seen that they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh than all the youths who ate the king's food. So the steward took away their food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables. Because again, it is not possible for him to go back to the king and said, Hey, O king, these three are not eating your food. Here's your food and wine back. We don't need it. They're eating vegetables. Uh, Stuff you, O king. That has the real potential for the king to sort of get grumpy. And nobody wants the king to get grumpy. So this is all happening under the table, if you will. No fun intended. Let's shift mental gears here for a moment. As I said at the beginning, there's sort of two perspectives on the book of Daniel. Perspective number one is that it was written as it was written, it's historical and everything's completely accurate. Perspective number two is it was written sometime in the second century BC, and these are stories that are current among the Jewish people. You know, like you would tell your kid the story of Johnny Appleseed, and if that were the case, what you're doing here is you are setting up Daniel as being heroic, being virtuous following the dietary laws, willing to stand up to the king and his eunuch to follow the dietary laws. What you're doing is you're setting the table here for Daniel being a hero. And it starts with him being a hero of Judaism. And from there, of course, his exploits are going to build, but what we're doing here is we're establishing his character, which is the whole point of this first chapter. Verse 17. As for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom. And Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. At the end of the time, when the king had commanded that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar. And the king spoke with them. And among all of them, none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore they stood before the king, and in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in all his kingdom. Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. And Cyrus, of course, is a Mede who conquers Babylon. Of course, we get to that at the end of the book. So what we're doing is we're establishing these guys. And in the next chapter, we're going to get into the business about the king's advisors. But it's an interesting part of the story, that what's happened is these four young men 
have been installed into the ranks of king's advisors by the king. One of the things that will be important later in the story is they were not installed among the king's advisors by the king's advisors. In other words, there is a deep state Babylonian organization of the wizards and the advisors and so forth, and these four young men are not, by birth and by training and by selection, part of them. They have been appointed into that group by the king. That will become important later. The other thing is 70 years. Fascinating to me, you remember when God sent the southern kingdom into Babylon. He said, you guys have not been giving the land its Sabbaths. Because remember, the land is supposed to get a Sabbath every seventh year. It's supposed to lie fallow. And then on the Yovel, the Jubilee, it's supposed to lie fallow for two years. And apparently Israel had been just trucking right along, continuing to farm, right on through the Jubilees. And so what God said when he sends them into Babylon is, you guys owe the land 70 years worth of Sabbaths. So I am going to send you out of here so that the land will get its Sabbath rests for 70 years. Everybody interprets that correctly as the exile is to last 70 years. Something that's just fascinating to me is, do you know how long the Babylonian kingdom lasts? 70 years. So what happens is when God decides Israel is going into exile, he goes out there, snaps his fingers, whistles up the Babylonian empire under Nebuchadnezzar. They come and scoop Israel up and send them off into exile. And then that kingdom disappears after 70 years and is absorbed by the Persians and the Medes. I just thought that was kind of funny. I mean, it, it's sort of one of these things that, okay, I need somebody to come take you out of here. You, you'll do. Stands them up for 70 years, runs them out, and then I'm done with you. Okay, now we'll, we'll let the flow of history resume. Chapter 2. In the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. His spirit was troubled and his sleep left him. Then the king commanded that the magicians, the enchanters, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans be summoned to tell the king his dreams. So they came in and stood before the king. And the king said to them, I had a dream, and my spirit was troubled to know the dream. Then the Chaldeans said to the king in Aramaic, and I believe this is where we changed to Aramaic, from this point until chapter, the end of chapter 7, the original language is Aramaic. And the Chaldeans said to the king in Aramaic, O king, live forever. Tell your servants the dream, and we will show the interpretation. The king answered and said to the Chaldeans, The word from me is firm. If you do not make known to me the dream and its interpretation, you shall be torn limb from limb, and your houses shall be laid in ruins. But if you show the dream and its interpretation, you will receive from me gifts and rewards and great honor. Therefore, show me the dream and its interpretation. A couple of things here. Thing one is it's entirely possible that the king himself does not remember the dream. I have had vivid, vivid dreams, and I wake up first thing in the morning and say, i got to remember that. Boy, that was a really vivid dream. And by about 8 o'clock in the morning, I cannot tell you what that dream was. Very common. But if someone were to come to me and say, this was your dream, I would recognize that that was correct. So thing one is 
the king may not know what his dream was or, or may not remember it clearly, but you know, he's up, he's brushed his teeth, done whatever else he does in the morning, gone into his throne room, called everybody in. So this is probably several hours after he arose. So it's entirely possible that he himself doesn't remember exactly what his dream was. Thing two, he's a new king. And remember, he is a military commander. And I will tell you from personal experiences that field commanders don't trust headquarters guys. They just don't. So he's come back from being a military commander. This is before Jerusalem has been destroyed, but after his Egyptian campaign. And so he comes back and he's now taken over rulership because his dad's died. It isn't clear how well he knows these guys. They're the king's advisors, and it's sort of like when a new administration comes in, you bring in your own cabinet secretaries and stuff like that. Well, he has inherited these guys from the previous regime. They are the deep state, modern parlance. And so he's got two things he wants to do. Thing one is he wants to see if they're competent. In other words, these guys know their sauce. Or thing two, if they're not competent, he wants to get rid of them and install his own people. And he needs a reason to do that. So brings them all in, says, okay, guys, here's the deal. I had a dream that kept me awake, disturbed me, and I want to know what the dream was and what does it mean. And you see biblically all over that kings had on their staff people whose job it was to prophesy, people whose job it was to contact the gods, people whose job it was to interpret dreams, people whose job it was to curse their enemies. All of these old kingdoms had people whose job it was to be in spiritual contact with whatever they believed. So his question then, logically enough, as a new king is, are these guys any good? Or, okay, I grew up with these guys. I've now been out in the field and I'm coming back and they're now my headquarters and I didn't like them when I left. That's also a possibility. Verse 7. They answered a second time and said, Let the king tell his servants the dream and we will show its interpretation. The king answered and said, I know with certainty that you are trying to gain time because you see that the word from me is firm. If you do not make the dream known to me, there is but one sentence to you. You have agreed to speak lying and corrupt words before me till the times change. In other words, until I forget about it. You're going to stand up there with your PowerPoint presentations until everybody finally goes to sleep and gives up. That's what he's saying. You're just going to keep talking until I give up on this. Furthermore, if I tell you the dream, you're going to give me some BS interpretation that may not have any spiritual relevance whatsoever. Because you guys got into your position by being really good with words. Sound like a bureaucrat to you? Got into your position by being really good at writing reports and standing up and speaking and all that kind of stuff. You don't necessarily have to be competent in order to do all that. So what he's saying is, if I tell you the dream, you guys are just going to baffle me with PowerPoint presentations till I give up. So you have agreed to speak lying and corrupt words before me till the times change. Therefore, tell me the dream, and I shall know you can show me its interpretation. If you can tell me what the dream was, I'll trust your interpretation. The Chaldeans answered the king and said, 
There is not a man on earth that can meet the king's demand. For no great and powerful king has asked such a thing of any magician or enchanter or Chaldean. The thing that the king asks is difficult, and no one can show it to the king except the gods, whose dwelling is not with the flesh. I spent 20 years of my life in the army dealing with bureaucracies. And a bureaucrat is really, really good at telling you why something that he doesn't want to do can't be done. There are just 10,000 reasons why this can't be done. And that's what Nebuchadnezzar is doing here. He's just sort of looking at him and saying, don't tell me what you can't do. If you can't do it, I'll get somebody else. And oh, by the way, getting somebody else is not going to be pleasant. In other words, you're not just going to lose your pension. So get with it. Because of this, the king was angry and very furious and commanded that all the wise men of Babylon be destroyed. So the decree went out, and the wise men were about to be killed, and they sought Daniel and his companions to kill them. Now, Daniel and his companions are simply in the same job description. I have got this bureau of wise men over here. I'm just going to take that whole bureau of wise men, and we're going to just wipe it out, and we're going to start over. Well, Daniel is part of that bureau. So he's going with the janitors and the secretaries and the wise men and everybody. They're all going because I want to clean out that organization. 14. Then Daniel replied with prudence and discretion to Ariok, the captain of the king's guard, who had gone out to kill the wise men of Babylon. He declared to Ariok, the king's captain, why is the decree of the king so urgent? Then Ariok made the matter known to Daniel. And Daniel went in and requested the king to appoint him a time that he might show the interpretation to the king. Remember, Daniel has access to the king. That's one of the things that got established before, is that he stands in the king's presence. So he goes into the king and says, why don't you give me a few minutes, or a couple of days, or whatever it is, and I will come back and I will tell you. Now, from Daniel's perspective, this is guts ball. At this point, he is sentenced to death. The death can either be short, quick, and squeak, we're just taking you all out, or you can really annoy the king, and your death can be very long and very slow and very painful. So he does have something to lose. If he can't perform, there's a chance that he will really tick the king off, and instead of just being killed, it will be on a far less pleasant road to the grave. Verse 17, Then Daniel went to his house and made the matter known to Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, his companions, and told them to seek mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery so that Daniel and his companions might not be destroyed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. Then the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision of the night. Then Daniel blessed the God of heaven. Daniel answered and said, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, to whom belongs wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness, and the light dwells with him. To you, O God of my fathers, I give thanks and praise, for you have given me wisdom and might, and have now made known to me what we asked of you, for you have made known to us the king's matter. So what obviously you're supposed to think about as you read this is you're supposed to reflect back to Joseph. Remember, Joseph is brought up out of prison, and he has a track record, remember? He has interpreted dreams for the baker and the butler. And so when the pharaoh has a dream that disturbs him, the wine steward says, ah, I remember this guy. So Joseph is brought up out of prison. 
given a shave, clean clothes put on him, and brought before Pharaoh, where he interprets the dream. So you're supposed to sort of hearken back to this because God's done this kind of thing before. 24. Therefore, Daniel went into Arioch, whom the king had appointed to destroy the wise men of Babylon. He went and said thus to him, Do not destroy the wise men of Babylon. Bring me in before the king, and I will show the king the interpretation. Then Arioch brought Daniel in before the king in haste and said thus to him, I have found among the exiles from Judah a man who will make known to the king the interpretation. All right, now, bureaucraties. Hey, O king, I, chairman of your guard, I found somebody that can solve your problem. Now, never mind that Daniel earlier on went in himself and talked to the king, but it is never a bad thing for a bureaucrat to come before the king and say, hey, O king, I have solved your problem for you which makes me a really valuable person. Point six. The king said to Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, Are you able to make known to me the dream that I have in its interpretation? Daniel answered the king and said, No wise men, enchanters, magicians, or astrologers can show the king the mystery that the king has asked. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries, and he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. Your dream and the visions in your head as you lay in the bed are these. To you, O king, as you lay in bed came thoughts of what would be after this. And he who reveals mysteries made known to you what is to be. But as for me, this mystery has been revealed to me, not because of any wisdom that I have more than all the living, but in order that the interpretation may be known to the king and that you may the know the thoughts of your mind. So notice what he says. God gave you this vision because you need it, O king. The only reason he gave me the interpretation is because you, O king, need that interpretation. In other words, I'm not the special. All I am is a conduit between God and you. The message is for you. The interpretation is from you. I just happen to be the transducer that transmits that message to you. you know, very humble pie and all that kind of stuff. Kings like that kind of thing. 31. You saw, O king, and behold, a great image. This image, mighty and of exceeding brightness, stood before you, and its appearance was frightening. The head of this image was of fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, its middle and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. As you looked, a stone was cut out by no human hand and struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold all together were broken in pieces and became like chaff of the summer threshing floors. And the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them could be found. But the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. This was the dream. Now we will tell the king its interpretation. You, O king, the king of kings, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power, the might, and the glory, and into his hand he has given, wherever they dwell, the children of man, the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, making you rule over them all. You are the head of gold. Now, later on, when Nebuchadnezzar gets himself all puffed up in pride, 
and get struck down. You can see where he gets that idea. I mean, Daniel is blowing smoke up his skirt big time, really puffing him up. So you can see how Nebuchadnezzar would get the idea that uh, he's, he's hot stuff. And he is. I mean, he's, he's a great king. So you are the head of gold. Another kingdom inferior to you shall rise after you. And yet a third kingdom of bronze, which shall rule over all the earth. And there shall be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron, because iron breaks into pieces and shatters all things. And like iron that crushes, it shall break and crush all these. And as you saw, the feet and toes, partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, it shall be a divided kingdom. But some of the firmness of iron shall be in it, just as you saw iron mixed with the soft clay. And as the toes of the feet are partially iron and partially clay, so the kingdom shall be partially strong and partially brittle. As you saw the iron mixed with soft clay, so they will mix with one another in marriage. But they will not hold together, just as iron does not mix with clay. And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed. Nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all those kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. Just as you saw that a stone was cut from the mountain with no human hand, and that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold, a great God has made known to the king what shall be after this. The dream is certain, and its interpretation sure. Does that sound just like Joseph? Dream is repeated twice. The thing is certain. Let's finish the chapter and we'll go back and talk about it if you want. 46. Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell upon his face and paid homage to Daniel and commanded that an offering and incense be offered up to him. The king answered and said to Daniel, Truly, your God is God of gods and Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries, for you have been able to reveal this mystery. Then the king gave Daniel high honors and many great gifts and made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon and a chief prefect over all the wise men of Babylon. Daniel made a request of the king, and he appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over the affairs of the province of Babylon. But Daniel remained in the king's court. So understand the extent of his... Babylon is one province in the Babylonian Empire. Remember, the empire stretches clear down to Egypt. So... They are administrators, and they would be like a governor, California governor, Nebraska governor, and so forth. So Daniel and his guys would be like the governor of the Babylonian state or province. Every time I read this, I am struck. The standard interpretation of this, and we will get it later on, is, of course, Babylon's ahead of gold. That's not open to interpretation. God said so, or Daniel said so. Then you have silver, which is the Medes and the Persians. Then you have bronze, which is the Greeks under Alexander. And then you have iron, which is typically regarded as Rome. As I read the description of iron mixed with clay on the toes, that very much describes the United States, because we are a divided nation, and we have the firmness of iron, at least nobody is particularly interested in the world and militarily challenging us. But we also have this internal weakness where we have people coming in and not assimilating, so we're brutal. And so you have all of that. I am personally of the opinion, and this is genealogy, this is not scripture, 
that we are between the fourth and the sixth seal in Revelation. You have the first four seals. The fifth seal is in heaven. Remember, that's the martyrs under the kingdom that have been beheaded and so forth. That is not visible on the earth. And then the sixth is not going to be subtle at all. So I think that's where we are. And of course, once you have the seals opened, then the next thing is we start the trumpets. And the trumpets begin the process of announcing the coming of the king. And if you look at the Jewish reckoning of time, we are in the year 5779, according to the Jewish calendar. As I read scripture, and again, this is genealogy, this is not thus saith anybody but me, I see this creation lasting seven millennia. And according to Revelation, the millennial reign where Yeshua reigns on the earth is to be a thousand years. We are at 5,700 and some odd. So if the Jewish calendar is correct, within the next 200 years, you would be able to see the return of the Messiah. But there is, however, some belief that the Jewish calendar is off by a couple hundred years. Rock that's cut without hands that becomes a great mountain is the Messiah. And as we look, that kingdom has not yet been established, which is why I find very, very strong parallels between the toes with the strength of iron and the fragility of clay, very evocative of the United States. And the standard interpretation is that the legs of iron are Rome. And then what they see is the kings of Europe have been trying for 2,000 years to reestablish Rome. So the Kaiser in Germany is, Kaiser is German for Caesar. The Tsar in Russia, Tsar is Russian for Caesar. So what these empires in Europe are trying to do is reestablish the Roman Empire, which would go to this as being Rome in the latter part.